National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security with guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation. Our guests are experts in their fields, and we, and we learn a great deal from them during the show. Please email KYMN Radio if you have a topic you'd like us to tackle. I'm really excited to introduce our guest for today. He's here to help us to better understand terrorism and the links foreign terrorism has to our country. Drop whatever you're doing and listen carefully because I guarantee you're going to learn something about terrorism today that you didn't know before. Our guest is retired Special Agent E.K. Wilson of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Following graduation from the FBI Academy in 1995... E.K. Wilson was assigned to the Violent Crime and Major Offenders Unit uh, for duties in the Albany, New York field office, where he also served as a SWAT operator and surveillance pilot. After selection as as a supervisory special agent in 2001, Special Agent Wilson transferred to the National Security Branch of the Counterintelligence Division at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., where he managed joint U.S. intelligence community special projects in the wake of 9-11. And he was eventually designated a field supervisor. In 2003, Wilson was assigned to the Minneapolis field office as a squad supervisor where he led a Joint Terrorism Task Force, or a JTTF, investigating international terrorism threats emanating from East Africa. In 2013, E.K. Wilson and his team were awarded the U.S. Attorney General Award for Excellence in a National Security Investigation for Operation Rhino, an investigation aimed at mitigating efforts by al-Shabaab to support their operations through U.S. recruitment, radicalization, and fundraising. E.K. Wilson subsequently returned to FBI headquarters and served as an assistant inspector and team leader in the inspection division before retiring from the FBI in 2019. E.K. Wilson currently serves as a pilot for a defense contractor supporting military operations overseas. Uh, E.K. Wilson, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks, John. It's great to be here, and thanks for uh, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this show for for quite a while. Uh, this topic of terrorism, I think, uh, piques everybody's interests, and uh, especially the stuff where we're going to talk about today. Uh, so, EK, let's go ahead and get started. There are many things I want to cover with you this morning. I didn't mention in my intro that you are a 1987 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, and that you served as a surface warfare officer in both the Pacific and Atlantic, and in Operation Desert Storm. So I like to ask this question of a lot of people. Uh, what leadership lessons did you learn aboard ship and in combat operations that you subsequently applied to your career in federal law enforcement at the FBI? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, uh, As you know, the uh, Naval Academy is really a leadership laboratory. So uh, not only do you get fundamental leadership principles, uh, you know, crammed down your throat from a very <laughs> early age and uh, a very early part of your four years there, but um, you get a chance to exercise uh, and develop your own leadership style uh, over the course of the time that you're there, uh, which is invaluable because uh, leadership is different for every uh, person. It's personality dependent, um, and it's different for everybody. So that was a very important part of that. And uh, just as importantly, and I told this to uh, as I got more senior and um, and uh, became a, a mentor for new leaders, um, you were exposed to uh, poor leadership and negative leaders and uh, as well as good leaders and positive leadership. So um, I always... Uh, 
I was reinforced, and I did this with my son, too, who's a, a West Point graduate, new uh, Army lieutenant, that you can learn as much from uh, poor leaders as you can from, from good leaders uh, yeah. by identifying poor leadership traits that you do not want to uh, carry forward in, when you're put in that situation yeah. or, or that yeah. environment. Yeah, that is true. Uh, so tell us what it's like to go through the FBI Academy at, at Quantico. I mean, is that a hard program? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the FBI Academy, and keep in mind, this is uh, my experience at the FBI Academy is 25 years ago, uh, and it's changed uh, at least somewhat uh, since then. Um, but it was challenging in a different sort of way. It was a lot of information uh, in a very short amount of time. It was only four months long when I went through. Uh, I believe it's up to about five months now uh, with additional uh, material. Um, so that was a bit of a challenge, learning new things. You were exposed to um, a lot of academic areas, constitutional law, uh, procedure, you know, procedural law, which was important to what we were doing at the time, which is mostly criminal investigations. Um, investigative programs, firearms, physical fitness, um, and uh, practical exercises to uh, be comfortable in arrest and deadly force. So scenario role playing, that e- kind of thing. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it was, um, you know, it was a lot of good training, um, and it was a, a lot in a short amount of time, uh, and they did a good, a good, a good job for what the threats were at the time with the exception of leadership uh surprisingly there really was no leadership uh development um part of a, of the fbi uh, curriculum so unless a new agent came in and keep in mind that uh, uh the average age of a new agent is or was about 30 years old so you're coming in as a second career if you didn't come in already with leadership experience or training in the military or corporate america whatever um you were expected to bring that with you You, that was not something that was taught at uh at the at the fbi academy and i think that uh in my opinion i think that uh eventually led to some of the leadership problems some of the crises that uh, they had down the road okay uh in recent times yeah uh, and I know that there are, and this is really more for knowledge for our, for our listeners, that there are a number of different pathways, uh, programs to get into the FBI. Can you talk a little bit about, about those? I mean, Sure, sure. Yeah, like I mentioned, uh, it's really a second career. Um, yeah. uh, the, av- or the, the minimum age is 24, but uh, at least when I came in, the average age was close to 30. Uh, and I was 30, and I think today it might be a little bit younger with uh, the, the uh, information technology agents that they're bringing in, but mm-hmm. uh, it's still uh, up there, late 20s or 30. Um, but uh, varied backgrounds, um, which is valuable to the agency. They do it for a reason. A lot of military, f- former law enforcement, um, a lot of attorneys kind of traditionally and accountants, but also a varied bunch of backgrounds, everything from uh, teachers to uh, corporate uh, corporate leaders, uh, information technology uh, folks, like I mentioned, now that our, our cyber program has, uh, has gained so, uh, 
so much uh, priority in our investigative programs. And, and I am under the impression uh, from what I've been reading that, that cyber is maybe near near the top right now for the FBI. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. As far as criminal programs go, um, cyber is probably the number one um, the number one uh, criminal investigative program outside of the, the national security uh, um, side of our priorities, which counterterrorism is still number one. Okay. All right. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired FBI Special Agent E.K. Wilson, who led many successful counterterrorism investigations. Uh, so, E.K., let's dive into the counterterror- or into, into, into counterterrorism, or CT, uh, which we're kind of here to discuss today. What What is a joint terrorism task force, and why does the FBI lead it, who serves on it, and what is the role of the JTTF? Well, uh, simply put, the uh, JTTF, JTTF is a, um, uh, a group of FBI-led uh, law enforcement individuals, uh, law enfor- or, uh, FBI agents, obviously, comprise a good part of the squad, but um, additionally, and the, and the size of the task force and the size of the squad varies, as you can imagine, from um, field office to field office, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Some field offices, bigger offices, have multiple uh, JTTFs. Okay. Uh, smaller ones may only have have uh, one. But on that task force or on that squad of investigators, um, the FBI brings in other law enforcement uh, officers and agents from other federal agencies, um, state uh, law enforcement agencies, as well as local uh, police officers. And the idea being um, that each of those Agencies and uh, departments brings a little piece of the uh, counterterrorism investigative puzzle that they, through experience, through history, through training, um, are going to be experts in that in that that piece of the investigative field. Um, and it's really a force multiplier. Um, it's interesting to note that the first JTTF. Um, the FBI is the lead counterterrorism agency for, for the U.S., and that's why it's led by the FBI. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first JTTF um, was born in uh, 1980 in the New York field office, so okay. way pre-9-11. And prior to 9-11, I think there were a couple dozen maybe in the country. Okay. Uh, there's like there's close to 200 now, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, so the events of 9-11... Um, really dictated the direction and the jointness of what our investigations, uh, the, the joint direction that our investigations needed to go. So you you led a JTT a JTTF here in uh, in the Minneapolis office. Right. Um, who who were the members of that uh, task force? Um, wow. Well, it's uh, you're going to have um, uh, pretty much any. Uh, intelligence community, federal intelligence community agency represented. Um, you know, so um, uh, DHS is going to be represented, State Department, um, um, boy, oh boy. CIA. S- uh, CIA is going to be involved, NSA, um, 
So that's at the federal level supporting you as the leader of the JTTF. Who are Correct. the who are the members here locally in in Minnesota? Who are well, um, the the exact composition is sensitive, so okay. I okay. can't. All right, don't talk but about that. You could imagine. <laughs> I think generally, the composition is going to pretty much include um, our local those, law enforcement. All of those uh, agencies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, so Operation Rhino, I mentioned that in the in the start of our in the in the intro here. Um, I, I do remember when uh, when there were a number of arrests and successful prosecutions for for that particular case. Uh, what what initiated that operation? Operation uh, Rhino um, developed out of uh, events in. The Horn of Africa in Somalia, uh, specifically um, around the two, 2007 2008 um, time period, and um, you know it was interesting to uh, um, observe at the time that we were receiving information, reports, intelligence at a very early stage um, through other investigative programs because mm-hmm. at this point um, al-Shabaab wasn't even a terrorist organization yet. Right. Uh, they were brand new. They were kind of developing through yeah. um, these dynamics in uh, Somalia. But, um, you know, receiving receiving pieces of information unsubstantiated or uncorrelated, I should say, uh, that young men were leaving piecemeal for Somalia mm-hmm. um, to go back and and fight in Somalia, and um, as those investigations were being predicated and investigated and looked into and uh, with uh, with normal investigative techniques. Um, it really took the fall of 2008, I think, uh, which was uh, a series of coordinated bombings in northern Somalia, Basaso and Hergesa, to really bring the extent of what was going on to light. Um, as a result of those bombings, one of the suicide bombers uh, was identified as a U.S. citizen, uh, and it tracked back to... Uh, Minneapolis, the Minneapolis area, and um, that inspired a group of parents who were fearful for the lives of their kids, their sons, their young sons who had left uh, to uh, be cooperative with mm-hmm. with the FBI. Yeah. Uh, they were afraid for their lives, obviously, rightfully. Um, so up until that point, we really didn't have a lot of uh, cooperation. Uh, to that um, to that extent mm-hmm. so it really took those events in uh, 2008 to get the ball rolling and once the ball got rolling uh, things happened uh, very very quickly okay could, could, are you able to talk a little bit about uh, kind of the investigative process and the arrests that you made and the successful prosecutions that should all be public record right that's uh that's public record yep it's ongoing though i mean those okay. um uh, those operations are ongoing and uh i'm not even i'm retired now so <laughs> i'm not even uh privy to them but you know i i can tell you that it was um 
it was a huge investigation. It was a lot of information mm-hmm. at one time, uh, and it took a lot of uh, a lot of talented individuals from the FBI, from the FBI in Minneapolis, the FBI in other field offices, other agencies, other countries uh, that had similar problems. So, uh, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the just the initial stage of that investigation uh, lasted probably three years, okay. roughly. Um, and the first um, set of charges and indictments were brought forth in 2012 um, and was approximately uh, 18, uh, 18 indictments at the time. Okay. Um, so which of those indictments represented an investigation and its own under the, the operation umbrella? Um, and, uh, you know, any one of those investigations is going to be a lot of work right? for probably two or three case agents. So as you could imagine, over that two and a half, three years, uh, there was a lot of work on the part of uh, agents and analysts and uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office to, one, identify what happened and who did what and who was responsible for uh, the... Uh, you know the spotting, the recruitment, the mm-hmm. radicalization portion of what went on. Yeah. Who did what? Uh, who was most culpable? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, to present that in a prosecutable format to right. the the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, and part of one very valuable um, lesson that we learned is that we actually had, we were fortunate enough to have um, the U.S. Attorney's Office as part of our, our task force. So we, we would work counterintelligence or counterterrorism investigations uh, from cradle to grave with um, an assistant U.S. Attorney. So it's not like the agent worked the investigation and then brought it uh, down the street to the U.S. Attorney's Office. That that assistant U.S. Attorney was involved in that case from uh, from day one. So, so they would know it backwards and forwards. They'd know all the legal ramifications, what charges could be brought. And exactly, all those exactly. Yeah. And uh, I think that was a big part of why um, those ind- indictments were able to be brought forward the way they were and why the, the prosecutions were... Um, were as successful as they were. Now, part of, uh, also part of the investigation, you know, the indictments is just one phase. The charging right. um, is just one phase, and it allows us to move on to um, other parts of it. But uh, we had to identify where these individuals were. I mean, mm-hmm. a, a lot of them, most of them, um, <clears throat> were still gone. They had They had packed up one morning uh, and just simply vanished. Most of their families had no idea what was going on. Um, and, uh, the, the and and I want to ask you about that a little bit later on, if we can follow up on that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so they simply vanished. And uh, most of them were still overseas, and so we had a lot of work to do to track them down. And as you can imagine, we couldn't do it ourselves. Right. Um, and uh, as 
you know, the, the, the years, the couple years wore on, um, we were able to identify several of them um, and figure out roughly where they were. Uh, a lot of them had died, right? Uh, had been killed either fighting or in suicide attacks, um, you know, and those indicted individuals, you know, were... Um, that, that was obviously a moot point at that point, but mm-hmm. um, so it was a lot of work uh, post indictment. A lot of uh, I think a lot of people think that the the casework ends at the indictment, but it's really uh, a good part of it is just beginning at that point. So during the time frame that you specifically were involved in leading that JTTF and whatnot, uh, how, how many how many individuals actually went to trial and were convicted? Actually, the only um, the only case that uh, went to trial, uh, there was only a single case uh, of the recruitment network that went to trial. There was a trial, there was a, uh, a, a fundraising trial or a fundraising subject that went to trial uh, as well. I mean, Ali uh, took her case to trial. Was that out of Rochester? Out of the Rochester case, yeah. correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a terrorism fundraising case but the only other case that actually went to trial we had several that didn't um they settle plead, right away didn't plea right away okay. but on the eve of trial they ended up uh, settling on a, on a plea agreement but the one that actually went to trial was uh, muhammad omar who uh, was an individual that was charged with uh, facilitation type mm-hmm. um support uh, operations older individual um and uh that was the only that was the only subject that actually took the case to trial okay uh so like i said i'd like to return back to some of that discussion uh in, in a little bit but for our audience uh, you're listening to kymn radio am 1080 and fm 95.1 this is national security this week and i'm your host john olson our guest today is retired fbi special agent ek wilson who led Joint Terrorism Task Force uh, here in Minnesota and a successful counterterrorism investigations. Uh, okay, so I want to bring up something that uh, many people are very curious uh, to know. Uh, how did this process of recruitment and radicalization happen in support of al-Shabaab? Uh, what was it about that group that drew the interest in, and eventually the fealty uh, of young Americans to join the terrorist group uh, in Somalia? And, and I happen to know uh, because I teach a course called Terrorism and Counterterrorism at, at Carleton <laughs> College now and again, uh, and I'm a retired intelligence officer in the Navy, uh, that the young Americans who ran off to join al-Shabaab were not all of Somali descent. So That's, that's correct. Uh, t- what was the attraction of that group? Well, I think to understand the, uh, the, the attraction, or at least the sympathy towards al-Shabaab, mm-hmm. you have to, have to kind of go back to their... To, the roots of al-Shabaab, which lie uh, with AIAI, um, al-Idiyad al-Islami, which goes back to the post, actually to the Adid regime. Uh, they were kind of born out of efforts to counter his control of, uh, of uh, the capital of Mogadishu. And uh, so AIAI... Um, gained some favorability with the Somali people okay. uh, because of that. Uh, they eventually morphed with a group called the uh, ICU, the Islamic Courts Union, mm-hmm. who provided 
uh, a relative degree of stability to the region, to the capital. Uh, and we should, we should hire, highlight for the audience that we're talking about a Mogadishu and a Somalia that literally collapsed. It, uh, absolutely. When Siad Barre left. And, I mean, literally, there was no government. That is, it was that total is chaos, uh, famine, civil war. ID'd, uh, Muhammad Farah ID sort of took over as strongest militia leader, but there's still no peace. And Correct. Very unstable. Yeah. Um, Somalia, civil war, like you mentioned, uh, very tough period. And so uh, as a result of that, AIAI and then subsequently the ICU union with AIAI uh, kind of gained control of the capital region. Okay. And during that period, uh, in the early 2000s, there was a relative stability that was kind of unprecedented, at least in the lifetimes of most of the people that were living there. Yeah. Um, and um, however, for the region uh, at the time, it inspired a lot of fear, as okay. you can imagine. Sure. Um, and uh, in and around the neighboring countries, Ethiopia in particular, the TFG, which was the recognized government there. And uh, in 2006, Ethiopia invaded Somalia Mm -hmm. uh, at the request of the TFG and with the support of uh, a lot of other countries, the U.S. included, um, and basically pushed the ICU out of Mogadishu uh, and dissipated them. The, The... the off-branch of the AIAI, which had kind of been the security arm of the ICU, younger um, individuals um, retreated to the south and continued to wage guerrilla warfare okay. uh, from the hills outside of Mogadishu. Um, those young guys became Al-Shabaab. Okay. Uh, so you can imagine um, the discontent with with the general Somali diaspora in in particular that, uh, one, they had some relative stability there. Their relatives who were all still there were happy Mm -hmm. and relatively safe. Um, And all of a sudden, uh, these people are pushed out. Ethiopia invades, which is a historical rivalry. (laughs) Um, So that didn't go over well. And uh, so there was a lot of support for early al-Shabaab. They were seen as freedom fighters, um, not a terrorist organization. They were seen as um, the future good for the security of Somalia. Um, And that lingered uh, for a long time. So uh, as these individuals came to the U.S., remained in contact with relatives, uh, that information got fed to young Somali men mostly Somali, like you mentioned, uh, here in the U.S. A lot of them in Minnesota, most of them in Minnesota, but other places as well. Mm-hmm. And um, so even though a lot of these young guys were U.S. citizens, or at least U.S. persons, or were even born in the U.S., many of them had never even been to Somalia. Right. Uh, they were kind of inspired yeah. by those stories of these guys that they saw as freedom fighters, um, and that that appeal to their sense of adventure. And um, a lot of people thought that uh, there was a a very sophisticated, concerted recruitment network Mm -hmm. uh, early on um, and a 
process, but it was we f- we found that it was more of a peer to peer sort of uh, yeah. recruiting young men recruiting process. each other. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. not some radically mom as some people were led to believe. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And early on, as uh, I'm sure you know and have read, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of people, a lot of individuals in the Somali community were pointing fingers at a particular mosque in Minneapolis. Uh, I think that they that mosque was responsible for writing these radical, radicalizing these uh, individuals, and uh, our investigation found that that, that simply wasn't the, the, the wasn't the truth. A lot of them attended the mosque. It was a huge mosque. It was yeah. the biggest mosque in the in the area. Um, so a lot of them attended there uh, or worshipped there, but um, the the mosque and the mosque leadership was was not behind the radicalization. Yeah. Uh, so, so you touched on, uh, you know, these men, uh, these young men, young Americans uh, deciding to head off and join, and, and that it was a traumatic experience for their families back here in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a young man might head off to school in the morning or to his job, and uh, he doesn't come home at night. He just he he just pulls a, a Kaiser Soze right uh, from the usual suspects, just disappears. <laughs> and the next time his family might might hear from him was uh, after he'd arrived in Somalia and become part of the Al Shabaab group. Uh, fully inculcated uh, in their ideology at that point, uh, taking up arms against whoever Al Shabaab's enemies were. Right. Uh, in the region. How how hard was it for you uh, to gain the trust of the Somali American community uh, here in Minnesota to help with your investigations? I have to imagine that it was a difficult uh, process of gaining that trust. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. There was a there was a, a tremendous challenge. Um, recognized early on. Like I mentioned earlier, we didn't even, I mean, it, it seems unfathomable to uh, uh, to any parent that your kid would disappear and that you wouldn't go report it uh, to law enforcement. But, um, you know, at the time, um, you know, the, small, the, the community was very isolated, very yeah. insular. Mm-hmm. Um, and they traditionally handled problems and issues uh, within the community and within uh, the the clan networks uh, yeah. with and the neighborhood elders. Can, can we take a little a little detour there? Can you talk a little bit about kind of the cultural uniqueness of uh, of Somali life, the clan uh, culture? Yeah, abs- absolutely. There's a the and this was a a, a large part of uh, our challenge gaining the trust and the cooperation. But um, like I mentioned, uh, the, uh, the clan structure in Somalia was pretty much w- represented on proportional, a proportional scale in Minneapolis. Okay. So uh, in, in the, the Somali community in Minneapolis, um, is the largest in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and uh, by some um, accounts, the largest outside of Somalia. Right, um, and it is like I mentioned; it's representative uh, tribally, kind of by the same proportion as it is in Somalia. Um, and there's a lot of communication back and forth with relatives and. Uh, other individuals that remain in Mogadishu, so they're very communicative culture, as as I'm sure you know. Yep. Uh, very oral, uh, audio focused culture. Um, so in tune with what's going on 
in Mogadishu on a daily basis. And those Klan lines are uh, equal in, in Minneapolis as they are in Somalia. So uh, culturally, a lot of the issues, um, a lot of the problems in the community are dealt with by clan elders mm-hmm. and that's what they were used to doing that's what they were doing at the time yeah they didn't trust the u.s government much less the fbi there was a lot of misconceptions uh, amazing misconceptions about what the fbi was and did and could do and couldn't do um and it just it, it, you had to step back um as somebody who n- never experienced what these individuals experienced in somalia right and uh, kind of see what was going on through a different lens, through what they were seeing, because perception is reality. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it was a very big challenge, uh, to put it to put it uh, mildly. Maybe we can drill down a little bit more on, on that topic. Uh, I mean, as you know, EK, my, my background in naval intelligence, including serving... DOD as a CIA-trained case officer, and I recruited spies for America as part of my, my duties as an intel officer. Uh, so I think I know a little bit about gaining the trust of people who are right. who are who find themselves in very difficult or, or challenging situations. Uh, and I recall uh, during this time frame that we're talking about uh, that when these young Americans disappeared and, and joined Al-Shabaab, that there were people out there calling for deep investigations, you know, penetrations of uh, into that immigrant community of, of Somalis here in Minnesota, uh, where some of the Al-Shabaab uh, militants came from. Uh, was it your experience that, that openly and honestly dealing with the Somali-American community, gaining their trust, working closely with them in a transparent way, and, and continually building that relationship – was that far more productive than would have been isolating them and casting doubt on their loyalty uh, to other places, you know, to, to America? In other words, um, these are immigrants who've chosen to come to, to America, who've chosen to make their homes here in Minnesota. Uh, I'm sure that they have experienced uh, atrocious levels of discrimination and bigotry because, you know, they look different, their religion is different. Uh, but here now we're talking their children are the ones who have been radicalized by, by other young men, uh, and they are scared to death about losing their sons. So they are right. working with you. So so was it your experience that embracing them as a member of as members of our community, as members of our society, was a better approach than would have been further isolating them through intrusive investigative techniques. Yeah, absolutely, uh, without a doubt. And that was something I identified early on as a priority. Um, Once we realized how uh, difficult it was going to be to get through and gain the trust and cooperation, Mm -hmm. we um, realized that um, that just... Ignoring that fact because we knew that a lot of their misconceptions were simply not true, mm-hmm. that wasn't good enough. We had to um, we had to convince them of that. And you're right; there there was a lot of uh, stereotype based discrimination by a lot of factions of uh, of the public um, that was undermining those efforts, uh, our efforts to um, to get closer to, to leaders in the community, but. Um, yeah, we, we, we launched a campaign aimed at, uh, at the media to mm-hmm. try to cooperate or 
um, engage with the media, I should say, the best we could, to the extent that we could, during yeah. an ongoing investigation, right. to get that word out that, um, you know, what we were there to do, which was to uh, protect the United States and the U- and U.S. persons, which included uh, Somali Americans. Right. Um, that was simply, that was a fundamental concept that ju- they just did not understand. The community just did not understand or, or appreciate that. So uh, a media campaign, a, a community outreach campaign, uh, for lack of a better word, and uh, a lot of that, and um, a lot of that uh, fell to me uh, and to our, our uh, special agent charge at the time. Well, no pressure, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was uh, challenging to say the least, but also uh, one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever been through. And it, it just involved really just uh, um, engaging uh, with leaders, establishing individuals that we could talk to. They didn't have to agree with us mm-hmm. or even like us, but if they were willing to talk, we would talk to them. Uh, I attended uh, scores of uh, town hall meetings, uh, neighborhood meetings, um, one-on-one meetings, mo- uh, mosque leadership mm-hmm. meetings. Um, and I tried to be as open as I could, and I was upfront by saying, look, we can't tell you everything that's going on. Right. We can't do that with investigation, but um, I can tell you what I can tell you, and I'll be honest if i can't tell you something i'm not going to make something up and um you know i'll take questions i was on the receiving end of hundreds of very difficult questions in that sort of environment um but it was revealing that what the perception of the community was it was very telling what the the perception was and at least gave me an opportunity to um correct it Mm -hmm. they didn't have to believe me uh, but I think eventually a lot of them did or at least believed that um, what I was saying w- was accurate. They may not love the FBI. They may not have not uh, loved the U.S. government or trusted them completely. But I felt pretty confident that we ge- we definitely gained a higher level of trust than uh, we started with. And uh, I'll tell you what, it um, a lot of people don't realize that there are a lot of good patriotic small American citizens that yeah. just want uh, the American dream. Right, like everybody uh, else. Just like everybody else, yeah. just like every other uh, immigrant community and uh, are, uh, are smart, resourceful, hardworking, and just want a safe and secure environment for their family. Yeah. So it sounds to me, uh, from what, what you've been describing, that it requires, uh, for that engagement, you have to have a very high degree of emotional intelligence. I mean, you really do have to be able to empathize with the people uh, right. who are in this situation, who are not understanding how the system works, and you have to deliver on what you say you're going to do. True. <laughs> Very true. You don't want to make promises you can't keep. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I won't lie, it was frustrating a lot of times. Sure, sure. Um, and, uh, but... You're absolutely correct. You have to to, to uh, empathize with uh, the experience, with understand the culture, understand why some of these individuals thought and felt the same uh, or the, the way that they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and to you or I that knows the individuals working in the intelligence community and um, the constitutional protections right. that are afforded, yeah. um, 
everybody in the right. country. Yeah. Um, uh, it was just it just boggled my mind to think that uh, anybody would think that we would just blanketly investigate somebody because they were Somali or that we right. would listen to any, somebody. Uh, not only can't we do that, but we don't want to. And it, right, you know, it wouldn't. It would use the entire, uh, you know, manpower of every intelligence community if we wanted to just randomly uh, listen to people because we could, which yeah, we can't. I, I think it was my experience that. Uh, the intelligence community and the FBI as a member of the intelligence community, the U.S. intelligence community, the protections for uh, Americans' rights is taken incredibly seriously. Absolutely, uh, in those Absolutely. in those uh, those jobs, uh, federal law enforcement or or the intelligence community side, protecting everybody's uh, fundamental rights as an American. Unquestionably. Uh, so, EK, we just have a couple minutes left. Uh, what else should our listeners know about the FBI today? Here's your opportunity to sort of I – mean, I know you've been retired for a couple of years, uh, so you're not uh, representing the FBI yeah. today, but you are a retired special yeah. agent. My opinions uh, or statements do not reflect that's the – That's right. Uh, <laughs> but the ongoing investigatory work that special agents uh, just like you are doing every day, uh, what, do you want us, what do you want the listeners to know about the FBI? Um, I, I think I would um, just kind of embrace the fact that uh, – you know the 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 FBI um, throughout its history has has received positive uh, coverage, media coverage, and uh, and negative coverage. And uh, as of recent years, there's been some negative um, reporting about um, events within the FBI and, and FBI leadership. Um, but I can say. Uh, after 24 years in the organization, uh, I feel confident that the individuals, and I'm not a rah-rah FBI cheerleader. I'm not going to pretend like there aren't poor performers or yeah. bad people in any agency or, or poor leaders in any agency. Every um, organization has them. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely true. Um, but I can tell you that 99.9% uh, .9 of uh, the men and women that come to work at the FBI every day are hardworking, patriotic Americans um, that come to the job, you know, oftentimes taking a pay cut, yeah. uh, working tough hours, and oftentimes in, in a rotten environment in bad places overseas, uh, away from their, their, uh, their families, um, just to try to make the U.S. A, a better, more secure place, and the, the people that uh, that they represent as well. Yeah. Uh, so, unfortunately, uh, E.K. Wilson, we've reached the end of our show today. I know that uh, that you're getting ready to ramp up on another uh, training uh, pipeline for this uh, aviation job that you have now. Uh, so, right. I'm glad we were able to uh, get together today in your busy schedule. Uh, thank you for joining us today on National Security This Week. Absolutely, it was my pleasure and. Uh, Good to see you, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you'll join me again at 9 a.m. next Wednesday morning for another fantastic show. Have a great finish for your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. 
Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.